What we do here is go back, 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 back. back. And welcome into episode 24 of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. My name is David Statman, and as always, I am joined by my good friends Angelo and Glisa and Jake Long as we rewatch, relive, and remember a different wrestling pay-per-view every single week. And this week, we had a very, very good time. I know a couple of you guys didn't like this show that much. I enjoyed it because it was such a huge nostalgia trip for me, going back to like my first few months of watching wrestling. We are reviewing WWE Vengeance 2006, the Spirit Squad in the main event, baby. <laughs> the furthest they ever made it. How's it going, boys? Hey, David, who was, uh, who was the other posse that was kind of uh, around? I, I, they might have been like early 2000s that remind you of the Spirit Squad. The other posse? Yeah, I think they actually called them posse. Like their name was posse. Oh, the Mean Street Posse? The Mean Street Posse, yeah. dude. Just Shane's buddies from back home. Oh, my we're talking gosh. About, we're talking Pete Gass and Joey Abs, baby. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Just put them on the card, man. Dude, I want to say, like, I want to say they made, like, a, a cameo appearance a few years ago. Like, they got Joey Abs and Pete Gass back really? on there, like, for a one-off, like, just kind of a gag. I might be making that up, but I feel like I remember that happening. <laughs> I hope they did, because that's beautiful. But- Hi, I'm a couple of guys. I'm the one that didn't enjoy the uh, Vengeance 2006, despite this being after the my favorite moment, which is that Rey Mysterio, Kurt Angle, Randy Orton triple threat match. <laughs> I did not like it. I initially said this is the worst one we've done, and then Jake had to remind me that In Your House 4 exists, so definitely not the worst. No, and this one had a legitimate really good match on it, so... Yeah. I... I, I will say this. I, I don't know if it was like objectively a good show or anything, but I didn't hate it. I I, I had a, a good enough time. You know, I don't know what was what was your just your your animus towards hatred for I you. I think the biggest thing for me is that I really hate it when the world title match is in the middle of the card because it's the best way to show you just how much Vince did not give a shit about RVD. Well, guess what, buddy? It's WWE. This happens all the time. I know it does. It pisses me off. Um, overall, I thought the first, like, uh, the buildup for the first half of the card, so up until the WWE Championship match, it was a good buildup. It felt like an actual pay-per-view. That's fine. Obviously, everything was shorter. But then the three matches after the World Championship match, now, I know, like, people pop for DX, but holy crap, those last three matches were just, took me entirely out of it. I know you I- love Imposter Kane, though. Hot take, I genuinely enjoyed the DX Spirit Squad match. Genuinely enjoyed it. I have thoughts on it, too. I don't know. I, would you give it five stars? No, absolutely not. But there was a lot of entertainment in that match. Meltzer gave it three, and I thought, man, that's way too high. I think that's about right, honestly. I think I would give it about three. I mean, the whole thing was you're going to make the Spirit Squad look like absolute jabrones, but they were. Because that they were, the yeah. Point. They were a bunch of jabronis. They were they like cheerleaders, Angela. It's not like they were like jobbing out. You but know, you don't like, need to make that the main event. You they, really okay, just don't need to make it the main DX. event. <laughs> they okay, you know, should they be the main event? The spirit. I mean, I, the idea of the spirit squad being the main event <laughs> of a pay per view. Yes, on its face, it is absolutely ludicrous. But again, it's WWE. This is the McMahon involved storyline, and the McMahons will always main event over the title. Because they are marks for themselves. 
and that is how it works. So you just you just deal with it and you move on and you accept it. Thank you for coming to David's class on Theory of the Spirit Squad 101. Yes. So I, I thought enjoyed, it was Vintonomics. I enjoyed the Spirit Squad match. I enjoyed it. I thought the I thought the boys they uh, they provided a lot of entertainment, and you had some you had some trampoline spots. <laughs> Come on, man! That was Admittedly, fun. those were cool. Yes. When have you ever seen the trampoline actually used in a match? It's never happened before, Angelo. That, that dumbass seen Kara never used it in a match. He just did it for his entrance. Then they put the trampoline away. You could use the trampoline as a weapon. <laughs> he never even thought of that. But the Spirit Squad did. That's it's because they had five Dolph. Heads, five heads are better than one. Baby. It's because they had Dolph. Yes, Dolph is the mastermind of the, of the group. But I think we're pretty much already into this. Uh, so I guess... We should remember some guys. How's that sound, boys? Let's remember some guys. Let's remember some Let's guys. Let's do it. Let's do it. Vengeance 2006. It is June 25th, 2006. We are at the Charlotte Bobcats Arena. That's what it was called at the time. The Charlotte Bobcats Arena in Charlotte, North Carolina. 6,800 people in the crowd. And, you know, we're all big NBA fans. Why don't we remember some of our favorite Charlotte Bobcats for a moment? Uh, Douglas, Douglas Rob, uh, Chris Douglas, Chris Douglas Roberts. Roberts. Yeah, that's jo- a guy. Josh He's McRoberts. Guy. Yes. Josh McBob. I'm thinking uh, Raymond Felton. Ooh, that's Ooh. a good one. Was that was was he still like as round as a cannonball there? He got chunkier later. Okay. The guy <laughs> who was round as a cannonball with the Charlotte Bobcats, though, Sean May. That guy. Ooh, was yeah, he was. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. They had a two guard who I'm vaguely remembering, but I have no idea what his Gerald name is. Gerald Henderson. There it is. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Gerald Henderson's a guy. Matt Carroll was a guy. Corey Mecca, McGett. Wasn't he on there? Corey McGetty, yeah. Uh, Mecca Okafor. Oof. So this is a basketball uh, podcast now. Yes, this is a Charlotte Bobcats era <laughs> podcast. But we have we are we are right in the middle of Flair Country for Vengeance 2006. It is right after the formation of the ECW third brand for WWE. They don't yet have ECW single branded pay-per-views and they would try it later on in the year with December to dismember it was the biggest disaster in the history of WWE so they never tried it again oh I hope we get it one day this is a co-branded raw and ECW pay-per-view and we have Jerry the King Lawler and Jim Ross on the call and we start out with a couple of future hall of famers in the first match on the card, we have Kurt Angle and a young Randy Orton. Randy Orton, just a couple of years removed from being an evolution and really becoming a guy on the main roster. You have the original Randy Orton music, which is the music that you always hear when I play WWE SmackDown vs. Raw 2007 on the Xbox 360. It's on my Spotify playlist. One of the great wrestling games ever made. Burn in my light. Such a good song. Classic song. Uh, you know, it's it's funny to see Randy at this time because he's like way puffier. He's a little bit thicker and he has way fewer tattoos. And it really emphasizes just the awful tribal tattoos that he does have. <laughs> Looks like absolute trash. Horrible. But this is classic Randy. This is him on the way up. And you've got Kurt, who is 
coming towards the end of his original run in WWE. He had just been drafted over to ECW. He's got this sort of weird remix of his theme song that I didn't really remember was a thing. Hey, do you know how close to the end of his career it was? I think it was, I mean, I think it ended in 06, didn't it? It was like later that year. This was his last pay-per-view match. Was it really? Was it that? Now, now here's a question. What was his next WWE pay-per-view match? Well, then it must have been the comeback a couple a couple years ago. It was it the one where he was in the shield. <laughs> yes, it yeah. was. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Just the single funniest visual in the history of wrestling is the shields coming out, and you've got like Dean and Roman wearing their or was it was it Seth and Dean? I can't remember who the other two guys were. Uh, Dean was out. It was, it was Roman yeah, it was Roman and, and, Roman and Seth. Seth. Was it Roman and Seth? Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought it might have been when Roman was suspended I, I or whatever. Whatever, whatever. Two guys in the Shield. We can't. We can't remember. We can't agree who it was. But whichever two guys from the Shield are walking out and they're in their they're in their tactical gear. They're no, you're all right. Ro- Ro- Roman was out. Yep. Yeah, Roman was they're out. all tacked up in their gear and they're coming out. And they're looking all serious. And then and then Kurt walks out with his with. He's got the the bulletproof vest on and he's like all smiling and like waving to the crowd. And it looks great because he has no neck. Yeah, <laughs> it's, he's completely pink. It is like <laughs> one of the funniest visuals in the history of wrestling. But then he went on to uh, to TNA for like ten years and was absolutely destroyed on painkillers, doing crazy flips everywhere. And it was just like you watched him and he was super cool to watch, but you were always afraid he was going to just die at any moment. And then his career ends, sadly, at WrestleMania, jobbing out to Baron Corbin. Yeah. yeah we, we, we ignore that part. But we have Kurt and we have Randy Orton in the first match on the card. Kurt is doing some shoot-style wrestling on him early. We have uh, He hits a German suplex on the floor. He hits an outside-in vertical suplex. But then Randy, the heel of the match, he takes over. It's a thumb to the eye and starts working on him. Uh, Randy goes up for a dive off the top rope, but Angle just leaps up to the top rope, pounces up, and hits a belly-to-belly suplex off the top, which was really cool. He hits a couple more belly-to-belly suplexes back-to-back. He gets them up, goes for the Angle slam, but Randy reverses it into the inverted backbreaker. Uh, He goes for the RKO. Angle reverses it, shoves him into the corner as... Randy's in the corner. He quickly undoes the top turnbuckle, which ends up coming into play later on. But in this next section of the match, Kurt Angle takes him to Suplex City, bitch. He grabs him, hits eight consecutive German suplexes. I counted them. He hits eight in a row. Finally tries to pin him. Randy kicks out. He goes up, hits the angle slam, locks in the ankle lock on him. Randy gets to the bottom rope and then sends him forward and shoots Kurt into the exposed turnbuckle. Kurt bounces out of the corner. Randy gets up. He hits the RKO, and he gets the pin in 12 minutes and 50 seconds. Boring at first. I thought it got good. Solid opener. Not maybe as good of a match as you maybe might have expected out of these two guys, but wasn't bad. But isn't that literally just like what we always talk about with Randy Orton? Not as good of a match as you thought it would be, but fine. Yeah, pretty much, honestly. This was a very Orton match, and, like, I don't know, it was very slow. He hasn't, I didn't count, but how long do you think he has him in a headlock for, like, throughout the match? He's got about a a two-and-a-half-minute chin lock in this match. (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, it was fine. Um, 
the only things that really stood out to me, the entrance music from Orton, which we've already talked about, great song. Arguably better than Voices. Yes. Not more iconic, but better. I, I have always found Voices to be kind of a cringeworthy song because it's like so over the top about like, oh my God, this guy's crazy. What? D- even David's even right. Like a face. He like, hears voices in his head. What? And they it's talk crazy. to him. They counsel him. They understand. So there was also one spot, and I'm sure Angel talk about it. I thought they were going to die on oh, the early yep. superplex. I, I, yep, I had, saw it. I'm like, oh wow, Randy almost broke his neck. Yeah, I, I don't know if like he, he wasn't ready, but Kurt just legitimately throws Randy Orton to the ground, and I thought he was going to break his neck. Yeah, it looked like Randy just like lost his balance for a little bit, and Kurt said, yeah. "Fuck, uh, screw you! I'm just going to throw you anyway." Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I don't, I don't know whether he kind of like like lost his grip maybe a little bit up there and then yeah. sort of wasn't really able to control him and they kind of fell in like a way that you wouldn't like wouldn't want them to but it was very awkward to look at um i i thought like there's a lot in this match that tells a story like with the announcers and talking about like how angle is one of the supplemental picks supplied to ecw to like kind of build up the brand i had no idea this i don't remember it and the idea of angle and ecw Intrigues me a little bit, but sad to hear that is kind of short lived. Uh, because, and this is my big issue with the entire card, it kind of feels like ECW just jobs out to uh, Raw, with the exception of RVD, because obviously you're planning RVD Cena, so you're not going to have him drop the title to Edge. Yeah. Um, overall, I think it's a solid opening match. I was really, I really wanted to see Angle hit that German on the apron. It was just such a big tease, and they sold it so well, even though it didn't happen. Uh, and other than that, eh, it's it's okay. It's a good solid match. You saw a lot of cool things. Uh, Randy almost died. I enjoy Angle opening it up in that kind of shoot style to make it like feel like it's got more legitimacy. But the one thing I will point out that no one else has pointed out so far is that did anyone else catch Jr. say, uh, "Man, Randy's gonna be drunker than JJ Reddick." Yeah. Oh, no, I was did like, not. Yeah, it was like right after JJ Reddick when he was. I think he was still at Duke, wasn't he? He got. Duke I think he I. just graduated from Duke because he w- it yeah. was right before he was getting uh, drafted. Yeah, I loved that. I, I that was re- Jr. Oh makes God. a bunch of just random like I watch sports references all the time. He and, also was very horny in this show again, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty horny. I mean, J- I, I mean, King King is always like very over the top horny. JR is more of a subtle horny, but he's horny as well. They're both horny men. I feel like JR is even more uncomfortable than Jerry, though. Yeah, it's always way more uncomfortable when JR does it because you like you you kind of come to expect it from 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 Lawler because it's like, okay, you know, that's sort of his shtick is that he's horny. And so he's very over the top about it. But when JR does it, it's way more understated and almost like under his breath. And you're like, oh, he's like actually horny right now. Because <laughs> JR is like, it's like he's JR. He's like he's your grandfather, you know? Like he's JR. And oh, then, like, man. I mean, like people were mad at him like a few weeks ago on AEW when he basically, I think he said something horny about Anna J and Dark Order. And it was just like, don't do that, please, man. You're like 75 years old, dude. Like, just don't, can you not be horny, please? This is very bad. This is a very bad look. Uh, uh, to get off of Jr., uh, I will say the one thing like that I got reminded of in this match is just the power level of Kurt Angle's ankle lock. I just feel like it's just 
otherworldly. It's like one of the, I know he doesn't win again. You get with any submission finisher, a lot of times it's not always going to get the win, but I always felt like anytime that was locked in, there's like a 50 50 shot of the guy tapping out. Yeah. 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 And I mean, unless Scott Steiner was in the match because then, you know, Kurt Angle knows that he can't beat him. And so he's not even going to try. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and they were selling the fact that Randy had had a surgically repaired ankle. So, oh, he's going to put him in the ankle lock and it's actually going to kill Randy. He's going to rip his foot off and then he'll never walk again. He's going to end his career. And then we're never going to get rated RKO and Edge is going to end up teaming with Shelton Benjamin. And that Shelton Benjamin is going to end up getting over and win 13 world titles. David, how much time do you spend thinking about this stuff? All the, uh, a lot. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> I think you know. I think you know. <laughs> So that was uh, Randy Orton beating Kurt Angle in the first match on the card. So we go backstage. This was kind of a fun little uh, backstage segment. Essentially, it, it amounts to uh, Vince McMahon harassing a young kid in a wheelchair because he's wearing a DX shirt. And then he shoves the kid out the door, presumably down some stairs, as the kid just screams in terror. And uh, I loved it. It was great. It was just a, you know, Vince McMahon murdered a child on paper. I definitely laughed hard at it, and I felt really bad about it afterward. Same. <laughs> like, like, Same. Like, I, like, I knew what the joke was going to be before it even happened. And then Coach walks in, and he was like, hey, Vince, you want to meet one of your fans? He's in a wheelchair. We're not sure he'll ever walk again. I was like, dear God. Like, I, I, I literally just put this child to death. 30 <laughs> seconds ago. God damn it. And Vince was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I loved it. Vince McMahon is one of the great comic actors of all time. Remember that time Vince dropped the N-word on live <laughs> television? Yes. Oh That's my thing. gosh. You know what? He got away with it because he's a billionaire. Apparently. So, next matchup, talk about uh, some gimmicks. Talk about some guys from the mid-2000s. We have a match between the new rising monster heel on Monday Night Raw, the Samoan bulldozer, Umaga. May he rest in peace. He is taking on one of the most ridiculous and really over-the-top offensive gimmicks in the history of WWE, Eugene, whose whole gimmick was that he was mentally challenged and people laughed at him for it, but... He was like kind of a savant because sometimes he would like imitate Hulk Hogan and win matches. But they literally just took this guy from OVW and they were like, okay, so you're going to pretend you have a 50 IQ. And he was over. Yeah, he was very weirdly over in the mid 2000s, but in no way was this ever a good idea. No, no, it was terrible. I'm just saying like for some reason – who who did he have the huge feud with? Like the main event feud. He had a main event feud with Triple H. Yeah, because I wasn't like Triple H like leading him on or something. Yeah, I think they like main evented a pay per view at one. Yeah, point. no, they uh, Eugene main did main event a pay per view. That is a thing. I think I, just I remember the context. I think I remember him turning on Jim Duggan too later on, and they turned him heel. Yeah. Which, I mean, a heel Eugene is the single most horrendous idea of all time. <laughs> Let's turn Eugene heel. That'll get a, We'll get Eugene some heat. Like, <laughs> come on, man. But so it's Umaga versus Eugene. Umaga's on his rise to the top where he basically just squashed everybody for a really long time and then got fed to Cena. 
So Umaga is accompanied by his manager, Armando Alejandro Estrada, who is a very over-the-top Cuban guy stereotype, who is actually played by a Palestinian guy who is pretending to be Cuban. But he's doing his whole shtick. And, you know, he cuts a great promo. He's actually really entertaining. He cuts this promo while he's, like, waving a Cuban cigar in the air. The fans the fans like him. And then Eugene comes out, and Eugene's whole thing, or one of his whole things, was he was you know, he idolized all the legendary classic wrestlers of the 80s. Um, and he comes out. He's got his backup. He's got Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He comes out. Uh, I forgot about the weird, like, Hacksaw Jim Duggan run in the mid two thousands where he came back and was just just there for like two or three years as like a as like a main roster guy and kind of never did anything but for some reason Hacksaw Jim Duggan was just kind of floating around all the time. Um, you have Doink the Clown who is played by Steve Lombardi the Brooklyn Brawler, and you have Kamala is there. Our first Kamala appearance. Yes, Kamala is here. Another just. Kind of, you know, a gimmick that does not age well, naturally. No. Uh, Kamala, who just recently passed away earlier this year. Oh, yeah. R.I.P. Yes. Kamala. Rest in peace to Kamala. And so Eugene's got his backup. He's all excited. Hacksaw starting a big USA chant. He gets in the ring, and Umaga just instantly kills him. This is a complete squash match. He just beats him up for about a minute. Uh, he hits the Samoan spike on him. Umaga pins him. Official time, 1 minute, 26 seconds. One of the shortest, if not the shortest matches that we have seen in any of the shows we have watched for this podcast. Afterwards, Umaga beats up Hacksaw. He beats up Doink. And then Kamala gets in the ring. They stare each other down for a minute. But then Umaga and Armando leave. And that is the match. Umaga with a squash on Yuji. Well, the to- next night, Umaga actually squashed Kamala, too. So I was, about, I was about to say, thank God that we didn't have to see Kamala just take on Umaga. Oh, no, I the just, next night they did. I know, and you just said it. Uh, mm. <laughs> Samoan, I didn't watch it, so I don't know. Samoan Spike, amazing finisher. Yes, love yes, it. I'm actually with you. And also, like, I kind of like watching this and just watching uh, Estrada cut that promo. I really, really wish that we had sort of like a Hurt Business run by uh, Armando Estrada with Umaga as like the top guy of the faction. I would have been, you know, so in on that. Yes. But it's literally the Hurt Business, so you have Umaga wearing a suit. <laughs> like He's still doing the same gimmick and shouting gibberish, and he has like his face painted, but he's wearing a suit. I would watch it. In a good way. That would have been great. That's what they could have turned Three Minute Warning into. You could have had, <laughs> you could have had Umaga wearing a suit, and then you have Rosie wearing a suit. And he's still wearing the like, ro- like the like he's still wearing like a superhero mask, but he's also wearing a suit, and he's just a big fat guy. I also totally forgot just like how insane Umaga is in terms of like being a wrestler because he's huge, he moves super well, he's super flexible. Like he's a guy. And I can't believe he got fed to Cena. I, I, oh, I know, oh, I, I know, I know. Twelve year old me was super hyped to see Cena overcome Umaga, but man, Umaga should have went over. Listen, man. Cena overcame the odds. He faced down those odds, and baby, he overcame them. Hey, and here's a here's a, a quick uh, trivia for you. What was uh, what was Umaga's name before this in WWE? Ooh, I have no idea. I know that exists, but I have no he idea. Was, he was David, on the main he was on the main roster before for a bit, and then they repackaged him as David. Umaga. Definitely knows. I do. 
Because we always joke about it. Andrew, are you giving up? I'm giving up. He was Jamal in the tag team three minute warning, who were the kind of like the goons of Eric Bischoff when yep. he was the raw general manager. He used to send them out and have them beat people up when like there were segments he didn't like. Like when they did the hot lesbian action thing on Raw, he had them go beat up the lesbians and like I think I think Jamal like actually broke one of the lesbians' ribs. Oh, oh my god. Like, yeah, like straight like actually like shoot broke her ribs. R.I.P. to Jamal. Yeah. Man, so WWE sucked so much. Like <laughs> WWE sucks now, but it does not match how batshit it was in the early 2000s. But we can look back on it now as inter- or I don't want to say entertaining because obviously some of it is very problematic. Yes. But like some of this stuff, if they did it now, it would be dumb. But now that we're watching it from years ago, it's like at least entertaining. Now you can like, still like, like the Umaga stuff. Yeah. You could still do an Umaga today, right? Or would oh, that no, be canceled? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, know, I think I think a character like Umaga, I mean, Bill Goldberg still exists and is really cool. Fair. You know what I mean? Or but like, I think I think you might need to tone down the whole like he's a savage from the islands who can't. Yeah, speak, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you have to tone that down a little bit. I, I mean, guess I'm I'm talking more about like the wrestling of it, like where he's just like a big badass, like the gimmick. Yeah, he'd be like a yeah. foreign Roman Reigns, like just a Roman Reigns if he didn't speak English. Yeah. Well. Fun fact about that, Umaga has a nephew named Jacob Fatu, who's the champion in MLW, and he's basically just a clone of Umaga. Like, oh, really? He is like he looks exactly the same. He has the same body, the same frame, wrestles the same way, except he does like like springboard moonsaults and stuff. Oh he's my like gosh! An, he's like an evolved form of Umaga. It's, <laughs> it's, it's insane to watch him wrestle. He's awesome. He's- He's perfect Omaga instead of yeah. just basic. He's Omaga. like the ideal possible version of Umaga. <laughs> now you said Fat uh, Fatu. I, I again, my history sucks. Any relation to uh, like the Usos or whatnot? Yes, they're all. He's in that. He's in that family. Okay. He's, he's you know he's cousins with everybody. It's like uh, it's like uh, Bruce Pritchard says. There's two Fat Samoan families. Just some of them aren't from the same Fat Samoan family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Umaga. He was awesome, though. I, I, I did love watching Umaga wrestle because he was just a freak of nature. But as I, as I was saying, though, like, you know, WWE's booking sucks now, but, like, it sucks in a boring way. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. back in the early 2000s, it sucked immensely, but they were doing all this weird stuff. Like, just bad, like... I mean, we're doing Kane. We're talking about Kane versus Imposter Kane later on. <laughs> I mean, the Spirit Squad and the main event angle. And then you can go back and talk about stuff like Katie Vick Ooh. and just just some of the most insane stuff that going back now you can watch. And like probably when you were watching it then, you're like, this sucks. Why are we? Why am I watching this? But watching it back now, you laugh at it so much, and you just marvel at it. someone actually put this on TV. It's like watching a car wreck versus listening to someone describe a car wreck. Yes, exactly. It's the same thing. It's a very good, very good, uh, very good analogy there, Angelo. Uh, hey, uh, broken clock is right twice a day. So moving on, uh, we have Mick Foley and Ric Flair, two legends in a two out of three falls match this would end up leading to we did SummerSlam 2006 i believe earlier on and they had a great match where it was an extreme rules hardcore match where they both just killed each other and pulled out all the stops and they just bleed and bleed and bleed everywhere this is sort of the setup to that so they had this match between mick and rick two of the greats and 
start off, Mick cuts a great promo on Ric Flair backstage where he takes out Rick's autobiography and he reads a passage from his book where he calls Mick a glorified stuntman and just cuts a great promo on him. Um, Mick comes out to kind of a muted reaction. You would think he would get a bigger reaction because he's so popular, but we are in Charlotte. It's in Flair country and Rick is a god here. So Mick is kind of placed into the role of being the heel because of the crowd reaction. There's big Foley sucks chance throughout the match. And Rick is the big star. We're getting towards the end of Rick's last like real full-time run in WWE as like an every night type of wrestler. We start out Mick trying to really wrestle with Ric Flair, but just getting outclassed. But Mick ends up taking the advantage, starts to beat him up. He hits a double arm DDT, and this was so great. He pulls out a special customized nature boy, Mr. Sacco. Just fantastic stuff. Um, he pulls out the Mr. Sacco, goes for the mandible claw, but Rick just punches him in the nuts directly in front of the referee. Again, it was Ric Flair, so he had like special dispensation to punch people in the balls whenever he wanted, directly in front of the referee, and it would never be a disqualification. Um, so he punches him in the nuts, he takes control, hits a bunch of chops, hits a double axe handle off the top, he hits it, but comes down selling his knee, and Mick goes after the knee, he fights him some more, beats on him, goes for the knee, but Rick counters him into a cradle, and gets the pin for the first fall of the match. So Rick is up one nothing. Uh, Mick Foley, who is just looking really worn down in this match. I mean, he can barely move. He throws Rick to the outside, backdrops him over the barricade. He then takes a garbage can out from under the ring, comes inside. He's about to hit Rick with the garbage can, but Rick gets him into the figure four. Looks like he's about to finish him off and get him to tap. But Mick grabs the garbage can as he's in the move, as he's in the hold, and just takes it and whacks Rick in the head with it for the disqualification. And that ends the match. Rick Flair wins two falls to nothing on the disqualification, seven minutes and 32 seconds. Afterwards, Mick Foley, he snaps. This is the heel turn. He beats him down. He absolutely kills Rick Flair. He takes out the barbed wire bat. He cuts him open. Rick is bleeding everywhere. Rick is, it's just a bucket of blood comes from Ric Flair's head. And that's the end of the match. And, and you know, it's Ric Flair. You knew he was going to bleed, man. Ric Flair bled everywhere. I, I had to go back and look at my SummerSlam notes just to make sure that I didn't hit any retreads from that match. Uh, but I don't think I did. How old did Ric Flair look here? I'm not asking how old he was. How old did he look to you all? He looked older than he, when he did in the SummerSlam match. He looked like he was 87 years old. And yeah. I mean, he was 57, which is no spring chicken for a wrestler. But like, damn, man, he looked old. Both these guys I, did. I spent, Yeah, for real. I spent the whole match feeling like I was watching Alex Smith play against the Rams and Aaron Donald. Like, oh. I just kept waiting for like one of them to snap the other in half. Mick looked bad in this match. When did he look good? Like, like when did he move well? I mean, I don't know. Before he got thrown off the hell in the cell, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I probably didn't exist before that. 
I appreciate the Smash for what it is, which is a setup for a actual real pay-per-view. Right. Other than that, though, it's just very eh. I, I guess the story of Flair just out-wrestling Foley, despite Foley trying to, you know, play the wrestle game, was cool and made sense, but just just kill each other, man. It was, just murder each other. It was just weird, though, because, like, you have Mick backstage, and he cuts this really good promo about how I'm about to show you that I'm more than a glorified stuntman. I can wrestle, and I'm going to beat you by wrestling. And then Rick just makes him look like a complete chump. Like, <laughs> Rick just wrestles circles around him. And it's like, okay, well, no, you. I guess you do suck then. And then he just gets himself disqualified, and that's the match. I like, mean, I thought it made sense. Like I, it was like, like Ann said, it just set up that SummerSlam match, which was fine. Yes, which was legitimately a really good match. I had fun at that one. That, that was, was a lot of fun. I, I think that, I remember having fun. That was just like. Yeah, here are these two old men doing horrible things to each other and just killing, and they, they just bleed everywhere. But you have you have Flair bleeding, like just leaking blood everywhere to set up for another match where he will just gush blood all over the ring. Who bleeds better, Flair or Dusty? I don't know if there's a better bleeder ever than Ric Flair. Man, he just paints it crimson, doesn't he? But I mean, it stained Dusty- the it stained the mat for the rest of the pay per view. Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Dusty Dusty made it a a tradition for his whole family because now Dustin yeah. Dustin bleeds everywhere all the time and every time Cody's in a big match he's bleeding everywhere it's a Rhodes family tradition. Dude, Whereas, Dust- I don't know I've I've never seen I've never seen I've never seen David Flair bleeding everywhere. You ever seen David Flair bleed in a match? What? Hell no. The Charlotte, Charlotte Charlotte bleeds occasionally but not like has she? I has think she? once. I feel like the women never. never I feel like I vaguely played. remember her getting busted open. Maybe it was just like a busted nose. Dude, if, if if Charlotte Flair ever blades, she will instantly become my favorite wrestler of all time. Yeah, the one. I mean, the one like the one time a, a WWE woman ever really bled was Becky, Becky when she got her face broken by Nia Jax, and then she became the biggest freaking star yeah. like in the company. Yeah, because it was so cool. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if Charlotte's ever done that. I might be wrong, but. You know, Dusty Dusty did it in such a powerful way that he passed it down hereditarily to his children. So, but I think Flair was, I feel like Flair was the better bleeder just personally himself. Yeah, that's fine. But yeah, uh, Mick Flair, or Mick, Mick Foley and Rick Flair. 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 I'm a big Mick Flair guy. Can you imagine how over (laughs) Mick Flair would have been? That kid would have made some money, dude. He would have made some money. So... We uh we go backstage. We have this brief little segment that I enjoyed where Maria Canellis, who is a backstage interviewer on this pay-per-view, she tries to get Carlito to explain the coolness paradox that has always been at the center of his of his uh his character. Why do you spit in the face of people who don't want to be cool when the people who are the coolest are people who aren't trying to be cool. They're just cool naturally. This was the central riddle that always just befuddled me about Carlito's character. And she presents this 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 dilemma to Carlito, and he just does not understand anything. This was a high that was a high point on the card. Yes. Because really, I mean, this was this is the, the central irony of Carlito. And mathematicians have been debating this for 15 years. As a mathematician, still... I thought this was very enjoyable. I loved his reaction to it, too. It I thought a, it was hysterical. It is a logic puzzle that has never been solved. It's like Fermat's last theorem, except for coolness. 
It's pronounced Vermont. I don't care, fucking nerd. Shut up. Um, so we move on from there. Carlito is in the next match. He is challenging in a triple threat match for the WWE Intercontinental Championship. He is he along with Johnny Nitro, John Morrison in the old Eminem gimmick. He's got Molina with him, taking on the champion Shelton Benjamin. Shelton is wearing a really cool shirt, by the way. Agreed. Yes, wearing a very, very cool shirt. Actually, in my notes, I say, get me Shelton's shirt. Very cool shirt. He was looking He was looking crisp. So uh, we just go at it early. Molina gets involved and, you know, is helping Johnny take advantage really throughout the match. Some really cool uh, athletic feats from Carlito, a guy that I didn't remember that well. Like, his, like, style as a worker, he impressed me in this match, just in the ring. Uh, he did a cool springboard, like flip dive to the outside where he bounced off. He kind of got up in the corner, bounced off one rope, jumped to the other rope, and then did a flip dive off of that, which I thought looked really neat. Um, they uh, Carlito then hits a springboard backflip into a Hurricane Rana, which looked really great. Uh, we got a great Tower of Doom spot in this match that I absolutely loved. They got, uh, like, so Carlito has Johnny, like, hanging upside down in the corner. And it looks like he's about to go do, like, the double stomp or something. But then Shelton jumps up to the top rope. He hooks him up to hit a superplex. But then Johnny raises up while hanging from the upside down from the top rope, grabs Shelton around the waist, does a German suplex, and everyone goes slamming into the canvas. Got a very big reaction. I thought it was a very, very neat spot. Carlito hits a double reverse springboard back, uh, back elbow. And then we come to the finish of the match. Shelton uh, hits a big kick to the back of Carlito's head for a two count. But then Carlito gets up. He hits the back cracker on Shelton. He's about to pin him. But then Johnny Nitro vultures in, throws him out of the ring, and steals the pin to win the Intercontinental Championship. In 12 minutes and one second, Johnny Nitro, I believe this was his first ever singles title in WWE. This was a, a fun match. And there are some things about it that are very 2006. And you literally took the words out of my mouth because I was about to call Johnny Nitro Eminem. Because this was cursed. Johnny Mundo, Johnny Nitro, Johnny Impact, whatever. Oh, no, I have this a take. Original. This is the original Johnny. Uh, no, he's cursed. Johnny Nitro. No, I have a, I, he's blonde. I love Johnny game. Nitro more than John Morrison. What? Oh, oh that's, a, that's a very, very bad take. And very <laughs> that's fine. I enjoy that his entrance so much more as a heel. Like, I think John Morrison, for me, like, he, that's, that's a face persona. And I like Johnny as a heel. So I love that red carpet uh, paparazzi entrance. I just think it's classic. It's it's classic in the sense that, yes, it is nostalgic for us because we watched Eminem when we were children and they were the they were the heels. You know, they were the heel tag team on Smackdown. And, you know, we hated them because we wanted, you know, because Paul London and Brian Kendrick were so cool. We wanted them to win. And they did flips and stuff. Yeah, they did flips. No one else did flips. That were, they were the only people who did flips in 2006. But, you know, like, objectively, John Morrison. John Morrison is a, like, could, could plausibly be a main event guy. Johnny Nitro, Johnny Nitro, 
well, yes, both both versions of them have just 13-pack abs, and they look magnificent. <laughs> but there is a difference here in presentation between John Morrison and Johnny Nitro. Johnny Nitro is still, like, at his heart, like, he is one half of a tag team with some guy that no one remembers. A Janetti. Whereas John Morrison is John freaking Morrison, and he comes in in slow motion, and everyone loves it. Oh, I, I used to love com- the coming in this in slow motion. And I mean, Johnny Johnny Nitro didn't do the didn't do the Starship Pain, which was a sweet move. So no, this is this is a very very objectively bad take. What was what was Johnny Nitro's finish? I don't remember. Neither do I. I straight up do not remember. I don't even remember Eminem's finisher. I don't remember Eminem's finisher either, to be honest with you. I'm going to look wow, this up. We are bad wrestling boys tonight. Dude, I this is so long ago that... Are you looking it up? I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, freaking hell. Okay, it was, uh, it was, a, it was called the Snapshot. Uh, that's right, okay. It was... Uh, Mercury would flapjack him into a DDT from Nitro. Oh, okay. I don't. I, I don't. I. I just don't remember this. I remember no. the name now, but I, I don't remember like watching it. I just. I straight up do not remember this. Not ringing a bell for me either. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, I apologize to all of our uh, our devoted Eminem fans uh, who listen to the podcast that we don't remember just basic stuff about that tag team. But <laughs> you know, Joey Mercury has been been gone for a long time. Is he I dead? Mean, no, he's. Oh. No. The way you said it, it made me sound like you were dead. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jerry Mercury, if you're listening to this, I'm glad you're not dead. Well, I mean, if we ever watch Armageddon 2006, we could watch him almost die. Oh! <laughs> when he gets yeah. hit in the face with the ladder. Ooh. That's about as close as it comes. I shared that with you guys uh, this week because I was like, I want some cursed stuff. I want the Kane versus MVP Inferno match. Yes. Oh, God. That, that's real good stuff. That's real classic. 06, baby. But... Maybe that was 07. I guess MVP, was that probably 07, the Inferno match? I think so. Actually, yeah, no, it was, was it was Armageddon 2006 because it was, was at it the end really? of the year. Yeah. Damn, what a pay-per-view. They really pulled out all the stops. <laughs> but, okay, so backstage, uh, Vince tries to use a penis pump in the bathroom, but it turns out that it's a prank from DX, and it explodes in his face. So Vince, unsuccessful at using a penis pump. What are your thoughts on Vince using a penis pump? God, I don't know what a penis pump is. God damn it, DX. I, I, I assume it pumps it in some way. I think the only time I've ever seen that is like in the Dodgeball movie with uh, White Goodman. Hmm. That came no, out around this time, didn't it? Think it so. Years before. Oh six, oh four, oh five, oh six. That yeah, range. I'm thinking like oh four ish, maybe oh three or oh four. Penis pumps had a moment in the mid two thousands, and we'll never forget it. <laughs> Next match up, WWE. Wait, I was hoping to talk about this match a little bit more. Okay, okay, no, by all means, Angelo, uh, continue. Because like I, I didn't even you get tell. You t- could have, you could have asserted yourself in I, any way. I'm not assertive. You know this. Listen, uh, you need to, you need to try and get yours. You need to grab the brass ring. Well, well let, let let me just say this then real quick, and I'll, I'll make sure we can move on to the next match, and we can start. I could start bitching a little bit more. Take all the time you need, Angelo. This all right, is, Jake, who's my oozing charisma thing. guy? You're oozing charisma. I mean, I don't know. Is it Carlito? Or it is Carlito, Carlito, baby. I love Carlito. I in the face. 
of people who don't want to be cool. It's I, I think it's iconic. It was great. I have fond memories of hating Carlito. Again, he kind of got the fed to Cena thing, so that's unfortunate. But I loved him bef- before it got to the degrading woman part. Carlito doing that in interview was great. Uh, Carlito's reactions throughout the entire match were great. Carlito getting robbed of the win was great because he was over after in the uh, the back snapper. Just I, I thought I think Carlito is a great mid card heel. I feel like he's a guy. And I think all three of these guys are just indictments of WWE because for the longest time we still struggled to create new stars here in this uh, world wrestling entertainment. And I think all three of these guys are eligible to be stars. If WWE just stopped feeding them to the top of the card. Yep. That that's about that's that is the same as it ever was, Ange. Same as it ever was, ever same was. as it ever will be. But yeah, I love Carlito. I have always loved Carlito. I've al- I always thought he was really funny and charismatic, and I loved the gimmick. The spitting the apple in people's faces. <laughs> I didn't I don't I didn't remember him doing the third person. But I appreciate him doing the third person. No, I, I, I feel like you can't do that just because that's the rocks thing, and no one can ever do that anymore. David, you know what? You know what I just what I just thought of? Like what we need on this pod? What we need a Mexicals match? I don't know. Did the Mexicals ever get a pay per view match? <laughs> I don't know. I feel the, like they definitely. They probably had. got at least about, one for the tag team titles. Talk about one of the most horrendous racist gimmicks <laughs> in the history of wrestling. You just, take absolutely abhorrent three of the greatest trailblazing luchadors of all time time. super crazy psychosis juventud guerrera i mean you're talking about three of the best and they get to wwe and they're like okay you guys are gonna ride lawnmowers to the ring aren't they doing the same thing with lucha house party are you serious yeah, like, are you serious but no because like 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 lucha house party kind of keeps like the lucha idea and everything like like these guys in the Mexicals were legitimate. Like in Mexico, were folk heroes that are still talked about to this day. And Vince was like, ha, "Make them ride lawnmowers." Yeah, like the only the only like Mexican person that Vince maybe knows is maybe somebody who mowed his lawn forty years ago. So that's what he associate. Like that's what he's like. Okay, you know, we'll just do that. And it's just the most ridiculous racist gimmick in the history of the of the. Or one of them in the history of WWE. And again, I don't know if they ever actually got on a pay-per-view. But if they did, it was probably what, like 2005 maybe? Yeah, sure. 05 been. to 07 when they're like feuding with Eminem, Paul and Brian Kedrick for like the world tag team titles. Yeah. Ooh, man, what a what a group. <laughs> no, I mean, we, okay, uh, I'm looking it up. Our, if we ever get Armageddon 2005, there's a lot of Mexicals content on there. Yes. Who you guys remember? Hoovy's got a, a, a singles match, and the Mexicals actually challenge, or, or they, they have a match with Eminem on there. There you so, go. It was with one of the two one. other tag teams of 2006. Yes. They also have a match at Great American Bash 2005, a six-man tag against the BWO, the Blue World Order. From uh, the old the old ECW NWO uh, uh, parody group. So, if we ever get one of those two, we'll we'll talk about the Mexicals a little bit more. But okay, so moving on, WWE title match is not in the main event. It is actually the fourth to last match on the show. But this is, in my opinion, easily the best match of the show. We have Edge 
not just any version of Edge. This is 2006 heel oh, Edge. God. The ultimate opportunist. Peak Edge. The best ever version of Edge. Accompanied by Lita. He comes out. He can, you know, the whole story is can he bring the WWE title back from ECW to Monday Night Raw? He cuts a promo uh, where he talks crap about the uh, Stanley Cup champion Carolina Hurricanes, which is just a weird sentence to say still in 2020. <laughs> and he promises that if he wins, he and Lita will have another live sex celebration. So, so, was, so was this after like the live sex celebration? The first one, I believe, was when he beat Cena at New Year's Revolution in 06. Okay. So earlier on. So he had already had one. Yeah. He had already had one, but he's saying, we're going to have another one if I beat RVD tonight. Oh. And Jerry got very excited. Jerry was, was, as you can imagine, very openly horny about the idea of seeing another live sex celebration. One of my favorite memes ever was like WWE Today. And it showed, I don't even remember what it showed for that, but it was like WWE when I watched it. And it was Lita and Edge in the bed in the middle of the ring. That really, I mean... Do you think that was comfortable? Probably. No. I, I, no I mean, like, you know, like, so in a wrestling ring, you'll have, like, there's a little bit of give. You'll have, like, you'll have, like, mats a little bit. And they had a bunch of blankets and stuff. I could see that not being the worst. David. <laughs> I could see it not being the worst. Okay, are we taking into consideration, you know, the thousands of people around? And the well, millions watching at home. That just comes down to whether you get performance anxiety or not. Well, for me, I bet you I would. So, no, it would not be comfortable. Okay. What about you, Ange? How do you think you do? Not Ange well. I performance anxiety with one person, so. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Good one, Jake. Man, good Edge, dig on that guy. <laughs> Edge has promised another live sex celebration if he wins. So, that is some incentive to root, against, or to root for him against Rob Van Dam, the WWE champion. RVD, hot take is really cool. <laughs> that's, not, uh, that's not a hot take. Either. Hot take or hot toke? Oh, good Ooh. joke, Ant. Good job. Of course, as we all remember, Edge played a vital role in helping RVD beat Cena for the title just uh, about a month ago, a month before this, at ECW One Night Stand 2006. And we get just Great a show. good match. Really just a good show of athleticism back and forth from these two guys. Um, RVD hits a standing moonsault for a two count really early in the match, then hits a moonsault press off of the barricade. They're getting back in the ring. Lita grabs RVD's leg as he is going into the ring, giving Edge the chance to come off the ropes and hit just this awesome looking sunset flip powerbomb to the outside. And RVD takes that bump slam on his back on the outside. RVD then comes back. He hits a crossbody that takes Edge off the apron, and then they both just spill to the outside and flop around everywhere. Uh, RVD tries to go for his spinning back kick off of the apron to the barricade, but Edge dodges, and he just slams the inside of his leg on the barricade. Edge then power bombs him onto the barricade. They get in the ring. They kick each other a bunch of times. RVD gets a big rally going. He hits a bridging German suplex for a near fall. He goes for the rolling thunder, but Edge counters it into a power slam. RVD comes back. He hits the top rope thrust kick. Hits a just a gorgeous rolling thunder off 
from the middle rope. He started on the middle rope, jumped, rolled, did the rolling thunder, like all the way across the ring, then gets up, hits a split leg moonsault for a two count. Then we get to the finish of the match. Uh, we get a ref bump. Edge gets Lita. Lita comes over and grabs the WWE title belt. She slides it to Edge. He is about to hit RVD with it, but RVD kicks him, kicks the belt into Edge's face, cuts Edge open. Edge is busted open hard way in this match. Uh, RVD goes up to the top rope with a five-star frog splash, but Lita gets in there, interferes, crotches him on the top rope. Edge is, again, he's bleeding everywhere. We already had flair just bleed all over the canvas and like permanently stain the canvas for the rest of the night. Uh, he hits a big rope hung DDT, but the referee is too dead to count. Eventually, the referee gets over and slowly counts, but RVD just kicks out at the last second. Finally, Edge has Lita set up a chair in the corner. He wants to spear RVD into the chair. RVD dodges. Edge takes Lita out, and then RVD hits the five-star frog splash and gets the pin in 17 minutes and 55 seconds. Still the WWE champion, Rob Van Dam. This was the best match on the card, and it wasn't even close. Yes. Personally, I, I enjoyed the IC title match. But watching this a second time, it is just good storytelling. And oh, man. you got spots like RVD's willing to kill himself, the sunset flip powerbomb. Honestly, underrated move was that uh, spinning leg drop where he just hangs himself up on the ap- uh, not apron, on the barricade, because there's no good way to take that. Um, I feel like for me, though, it comes down back to the storyline again. I really feel like this ECW storyline should have been money. It really should have been just printing money. And unfortunately, because of how the rest of the card got booked with Angle being fed to Orton, with Sabu getting fed to Cena, because again, LOL, Cena wins. ECW, even though Rob Van Dam wins this match, just continues to come off as a subpar product when compared to Raw. And I think that's kind of like Vince's entire thing because he wants Raw to still be the number one show. ECW, yeah, he's reviving it for those fans, but he's doing it as a money grab. He's not doing it as an actual meaningful way, despite Paul Heyman doing his best efforts. Yeah, and I mean, the the fundamental fallacy of reviving ECW as a WWE brand was that it would, they could, I mean, they, they could never like, I don't think it could have ever worked, period. I don't think that the concept would have ever worked because what made ECW popular and beloved was the fact that it was underground and that it was like counterculture in the wrestling business. And once it gets co-opted and it's run by Vince McMahon, you know, he's going to WWEify it because that's what he's going to do. And, you know, just because it has the name ECW and maybe it has the ECW logo, it doesn't mean it's the same. It could never be the same. It can never be, again, you know, underground and counterculture because it is owned by WWE. And it's just it's never going to work, period. Yeah. And uh, I, I again, it just gets bastardized to hell. We've talked about this before. Um, but again, both these guys do a lot of cool stuff. I thought the way that Lita factored into this match was inc- uh, was great, too, because, I mean, she's always an X factor. The ending was unique as well with Edge missing the spear and just slamming his head into the steel chair. I think that's really good, good too. I will say, RVD hits the most perfect German suplex I have ever seen in this match. 
I have never seen a German suplex as good as this RVD one. Even really? like with like Angle and Lesnar and all them, and the, including them, because it's just a perfect bridging German. Because he t- he he hits the German and he goes right into a cover. It just looks like it's being done in a video game. It's so like in it uh, unorthodoxly perfect. Uh, okay. Hey David, what do you think? And Ange too. What do you think happens if? Well, actually, I'll ask, I've already told Ange this. So I'll ask David. What do you think happens after this match? Like the next night on Raw. I don't even remember, man. So they do the rematch between. I think it's uh, it might it might just be between RVD and Cena, but they do some combination of that match. RVD retains. What's the big event that happens then? I that's don't when, remember at all. That's when RVD gets arrested. Oh yeah, that's right. He got arrested, and that completely fucked everything up for him. And then who did he drop the title to, baby? He dropped to Cena, didn't he? Cena always yeah. wins. Yeah, like the next week. So what do you think happens if RVD doesn't get arrested? That is a real big, like, all-time question mark. I think ultimately he still loses the title back to Cena, but maybe it's like a month or two later. Like, and he it's a slight, yeah, Would they do RVD Cena at Super, uh, SummerSlam? Maybe, yeah. I, I mean, mean, that's like, a big match. That might be the spot. Like, they do RVD and Cena at SummerSlam, and then he loses that. But, like, let's be real, like, Let's not let's not have any. Even though we may have wanted it to be the way that the way, even though we may have wanted that to be the way that it was, RVD is not exactly supplanting John Cena as the top guy. You know, like, no. it's going to be Cena, and Cena is going to be the long term champ. And it was but, Cena Edge at SummerSlam, so like that right there tells you that this storyline in some way was going to continue. Yeah, and Cena. I mean, Cena Edge and RVD. I mean, that was like the big story that dominated the entire year but they yeah. kind of just dropped the whole rvd thing after he got arrested yeah this was uh that, that that's something that we can talk about and like debate about like what would have happened never know. yeah i mean you know supposedly william regal was going to be the world heavyweight champion in 2008 but then he got arrested for or he i think he got busted for something he got busted for peds or something and wait they, what oh yeah <laughs> yeah no, yeah that was a big thing that's I think that was because remember Regal wins the King of the Ring and yeah no wait okay yeah and I think that was supposed to build to a Regal title run but then he got arrested or he failed a drug test or something and they dropped the whole thing damn shame just imagine we could have had William Regal as oh, the champion I mean, we could have had we could have had Rob Van Dam as the champion on one brand and William Regal as the champion on the other brand oh dear God that's cursed <laughs> ratings baby <laughs> we're talking ratings all right we're talking. Big time money from me. I would I would pay for it. Maybe, probably nobody from David else. Exclusively. Would. I would be the one paying for this. I would be the one giving the cash. But yeah. RVD last time he defended the WWE title, or maybe I think the only time he actually defended the title on a pay-per-view, because he won it at one night stand, he defends it here, and then Jake, as you say, he loses it pretty soon afterward. And he never again holds a world title in WWE and he's I think gone pretty soon after and goes to TNA. Yep. So, but yeah, I loved this match. I thought it was a ton of fun to watch. The athleticism is great. These two guys work super well together. It's very obvious that they have really good chemistry. I loved the rolling thunder that he did off the middle rope where he basically like covers the whole just span of the ring in like a second. Cause it looks so smooth. It's just like, he makes it look like the easiest thing in the world. 
And that's one of the reasons why RVD was so great. He just was such a great natural athlete and had that gift of making things look so easy. There's also the storyline in the beginning of the match where it's clear that Edge doesn't respect RVD at all. And then as the match goes on, Edge realizes he has to pull out more and more from his bag of tricks in order to even have a chance at winning. I, I, I yeah. thought that was a good little underlying story. Yeah, and again, this is the classic, the best version of Edge. This is the real rated R superstar and the ultimate opportunist. And, and the last the, celebrator. And the man who celebrates sex live on the USA Network. <laughs> Moving on, we have a uh, little uh, backstage thing where Paul Heyman is giving all the ECW boys a pep talk because we're doing the Extreme Rules Lumberjack match a little bit later, and all these guys are going to be the Lumberjacks. And then we cut, bam, straight into one of the biggest matches in the history of WWE. Just no setup, bam, straight into it. We have the Battle of Two Canes, oh all right? <laughs> we have on one side... Kane, big red machine, the devil's favorite demon from the fiery depths of hell. And on the other side, we have Luke Gallows in a mask. (laughs) Versus Imposter Kane. And one of the most just insane storylines that I can remember from this time. And I think about it all the time. Every May 19th, I celebrate Imposter Kane Day. Just, just a thing that I do myself, because this was their big tie-in with the, uh, di- I think, I, I don't know if this was a direct DVD movie, but it was like a crappy WWE Studios movie, See No Evil, where it was like a slasher film yes. where Kane was the villain. I remember seeing so many commercials for that on Friday Night SmackDown. They promoted the hell out of it on WWE programming, and Kane, the whole lead up to the release of this movie was he had the story where he would just be saying the, the, the words May 19th in a very menacing voice and promising that something big is going to happen on May 19th, which of course was the release date of the movie See No Evil. And then once May 19th came around, we had the appearance of an imposter king. It is a guy wearing the costume the original masked costume that kane wore when he first debuted in wwe so we have kane feuding with this other mysterious kane and it's just insane that this ever happened so we have kane and imposter kane who of course as i mentioned is would go on to be luke gallows who of course is a very notable guy who's in wwe for years was in new japan pro wrestling it's now an impact. One half of you know the the Good Brothers, him and Carl Anderson, a, bullet, a member of the Bullet Club. Like you see, I know Luke Gallows more as the guy from Talking Shopamania. Yes, the single most <laughs> batshit wrestling show in the history of wrestling, and one of my all time favorites. But yeah, and, and you know, uh, of course, also Festus from the tag team Jesse and Festus, as oh, I'm sure God. we all remember, the Briskets and Gravy Express. And it's it's funny to note that Luke Gallows, he's just called fresh up from OVW for this. He's like 22 years old when he's doing this. Like, he's only been wrestling for like a few years. And all of a sudden, he is having to pretend to be Kane while wrestling Kane on a WWE pay-per-view. 
So it's Kane versus Imposter Kane. It's a pretty short match. Kane goes after him early, but Imposter Kane is basically no-selling everything. Kane is trying to rip at his mask, and he can't get it off. The Imposter gets some offense in. He gets him up for a sidewalk slam, beats him down for a bit, hits a power slam. Real Kane fires back. He hits a DDT. He hits a power slam of his own. He hits a sidewalk slam, a superplex off the top rope. Kane is gets up to the top rope. He's about to hit something, but then the fake catches him off the top rope, hits a choke slam, and the imposter Kane wins clean in the middle of the ring in seven minutes. Fake Kane beats real Kane. Yeah, I didn't give a shit about this match. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I was like, shocked. I, I remember because you, you told us this before, like, we get Imposter Kane versus Kane. That's a real match on a WWE uh, pay-per-view. And I'm still as shocked then as I am now that Imposter Kane goes over real Kane. Oh, no. I knew he would because, like, they were pushing it. But, like, it was, like, a big deal. But why? Oh, I'm not saying it was the right idea. I'm just saying I figured that's what they did. David, enlighten me why Imposter Kane was important besides the fact of May 19th. It wasn't important. It was just... Something that they did for some reason. May nineteenth, Ange. What what is there? What are you not getting? I guess May nineteenth. The, the weird <laughs> thing about this, I remember, is that they have this match, right? They do the the, the pay per view match. It's like a nothing match, and the fake Kane wins clean. And then the next night, they have another. They have a rematch on Raw, and then Kane kicks his ass, and then just takes his mask off. Revealing him to be some loser jabroni, and then he's just gone, and then it's over, and that's the entire angle. <laughs> that's the feud, baby, and it's like never mentioned again. You see, my calendar goes straight from May 18th to May 20th. <laughs> In this uh, house, we do not recognize <laughs> the holiday of May 19th. I think I recognize that this is cool in theory, but terrible in execution. And uh, Kane has a really nice DDT. I forget that Kane has a very underrated DDT. Uh, next. I just Slow I, Burn? Or, or no, sorry. Slow Chemical is a good song? Great theme song. We've yeah. talked about it before. But that's yeah, man, that, that's all I got on this one. Not much. I just, I just think about this angle a lot because it was so bizarre. And it's funnier because, like, the imposter Kane actually went on to be a guy. Yeah. But this was <laughs> his first, like, okay, this is your first ever time, like, on TV and you, you're the fake Kane. Is it canon that Luke Gallows is fake Kane? I mean, has it been like referred to in the WWE continuity? I don't think so. So I'm going to go with it's not canon. Now, it is canon that Luke Gallows from like the Straight Edge Society and Festus are the same person. Okay, that that's, I do recall that. Yeah. Like are CM they the Punk same person as the club Luke Gallows? I assume so, yes. Okay. So I guess it is canon that the, you know, Festus from Jesse and Festus did win the IWGP Tag Team Championships like five times. Hmm. So that's, you know, you can, you can find gems anywhere. I'm ring with G1 finalist Carl Anderson. Yes. <laughs> I miss Jesse and Festus. Much like other I don't. Two. That was the stupidest gimmick of <laughs> all do you, time. Why do you miss that? Because it just reminds me of like me starting off watching wrestling. Because like they were the first, they and them and Deuce and Domino 
dominated oh my, my Friday Night SmackDown viewing Except experience. The problem was Deuce and Domino was actually really cool. Ag- agreed. But Jesse Festus was just so stupid. It was funny. Deuce and Domino, and they just were like, hey, it's 2006. You know what's going to get over? 50s greaser tag team. <laughs> Bring it back. Bring it, it was, back. And you know what? It was cool. I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. It was really cool. Um, I think it was, was it Deuce who ended up getting fired from WWE? Because which match was it? The Undertaker WrestleMania match where he did the dive over the top rope and like missed everybody and crashed headfirst into the ground. Was it the match against Sean? Might have been. But like, like they had Deuce at ringside, like pretending to be a cameraman. And he was supposed to get like pulled in front and catch yes, Taker. Yes. And he completely missed. And Taker crashes into the mat and dies. And it they was, fired Deuce because of it. It was the first Michaels match at Mania. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Yeah, Deuce Deuce got fired because of that. So uh sucks to be him. Oh yeah, and Deuce is like Snooka's kid. Yeah, I think he yeah, he was Jimmy Snooka's kid, wasn't he? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well. Good thing good thing Jimmy only had one kid. Yep, only one. <laughs> don't I can't think of uh I can't think of any other members of that family. <laughs> So we uh, move on to the aforementioned Extreme Rules Lumberjack match. So we have one side of the ring. We have the Lumberjacks from ECW. They come out to the old This Is Extreme song that was the the theme song for all the original ECW shows. And on the other side, we have Raw Lumberjacks who are in the side of Cena. So it is John Cena for Raw. And Sabu, one of the most insane men in wrestling history, going out at an Extreme Rules Lumberjack match. Cena, a lot of booze for him as he comes out naturally. 2006, this is when the, uh, the, the, like the smart wrestling community really turned on Cena hard right around now. So Cena gets off to a quick start. He hits a fisherman suplex. But then Sabu throws him out of the ring to all the ECW guys. And the ECW guys just beat the shit out of Cena whenever he's on the outside. Sandman actually destroys him with a kendo stick. And actually, I mean, before we kind of get into this, now that I mentioned the Sandman, I do want to go through the list of lumberjacks. I was meaning to do this because we're we're all about remembering guys here. Here are some guys. Here are some guys. So the ECW Extreme Lumberjacks. You've got Al Snow, yep. Head. We all love Head. David, uh, what do we want more of? We want some Head. Balls Mahoney is there. We've got Just Incredible. We've got Little Guido from the FBI, also We've known got, as me. Yes, we've got Amish Roadkill, who was really in WWE for about like thirty seconds. We have the Sandman, who we just mentioned absolutely destroyed uh, Cena with a kendo stick early in this match. We've got Stevie Richards. And we have the hardcore icon, Tommy Dreamer. And on the Raw side, we've got Charlie Haas, who, where, I don't, I don't know where Charlie Haas was when his buddy Shelton needed, needed some help. Should have helped him out. Fake friends. We got Charlie Haas. We've got the, uh, tag team of Lance Cade and Trevor Murdoch are out there, angry hillbillies. We've got Matt Stryker. We've got the con man, Rob Conway. We've got, Noted baby punter Snitsky. <laughs> Wait, <got> what? 
did you not know? Did you not see the the Snitsky, uh, like killed Lita's Lita and Kane's baby? What? Yeah. No. That was yeah, a, that was like we're talking two thousand four ish. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I think they did something where like Lita and Kane had a child, and then Snitsky killed the child. Good God, he, like, WWE! Punted, he, like punted the baby. Yeah, Snitsky <laughs> punted a baby. That's what he's best remembered for is punting the baby. Um, yeah. So we have Snitsky, we have Val Venus, and the world's largest love machine, Viscera. So those are the lumberjacks. Val Venus. <laughs> It bothers me when I Google Snitsky, the second picture that comes up is Lars Sullivan. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of parallels there, at least in terms of just the look and the I mean in the way they work. Really, they could just they could just run it back with Lars, dude. Just have have him be the same guy. But back to the action. So yes, Cena gets crushed with a uh, kendo stick from the Sandman. Sabu does the triple jump moonsault off of a chair. He gets Cena in the camel clutch, but Cena fights out of it. Sabu then hits him in the nuts. He does a triple jump back elbow, but Cena kicks out. Then he hits the Arabian face buster for another two count. Cena makes a big comeback. He hits a power slam. There's then a huge fight on the outside between the ECW and the Raw Lumberjacks. Cena just beats a bunch of guys up on the outside, but Sabu kind of gets himself back into it. He smashes Cena with a chair a couple times. The second one, he throws the chair at Cena's head, and Cena's head goes, like, through the chair. It's, like, the most perfect aim from Sabu. Like, he got him right on the seat. Great image. It was awesome. His head goes through the chair. Um, They try to set up... Cena on the outside on a table, and Sabu's going to leap through the table, but with the aid of Viscera and Snitsky, two of his best tag team partners of all time, John Cena is able to escape, and he murders Sabu with a kendo stick when he's coming in. Cena then hits him with a chair. He hits him with a just horrifying FU out of the ring, trying to get him through the table from out of the ring. He almost entirely misses the table. Uh-huh. And Sabu ends up coming down just like he kind of hits like one corner of the table and like crushes that part of the table, but almost entirely misses the table. It was really, really spooky. Um, Cena then throws him back in the ring. He locks in the STFU. Sabu taps six minutes and 38 seconds. Cena wins LOL. Weakest tap out before? ever. How did this match only go like six and a half minutes? I will say this. It is a short match, but it is filled with a lot of just like wacky insanity that I enjoyed watching. It was wacky insanity, and for that, I appreciate it. But again, it's it's the same. I've said before, I'll beat the dead horse here. Now they're feeding ECW to John Cena. Like Sabu was like one of the most iconic guys on that roster. So was Sandman. And they just look like absolute jabronis. Well, yeah. And Cena wins. Cena, bu- win- Cena doesn't just go over Sabu. He goes over the entire ECW brand. Because it's not that he just beats up Sabu. He <laughs> beats up everybody else He makes the match. He makes a mockery of ECW. An absolute mockery. He basically picks Stevie Richards up and throws him into, like, the 10th row. <laughs> I, Sabu does one of my favorite moves of all time. And it's the triple jump moonsault. Or not moonsault. Uh, like, senton, basically. Yeah. 
It's just one of the coolest moves of all time. He does it so effortlessly. Like if I tried that, I would break my neck in 17 different places. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to like get the jump off the chair. We would like try to balance off the chair and then we would like just fall sideways and then we would like become paralyzed. Yeah, like how does he like I don't know how he balances on the chair like that for the the yeah. Kurt Angle should be in Orton. Sabu should have been John Cena. And ECW never stood a chance. Yep. Damn. You know, that, like, that, was, that was beautiful, Angela. I, I, as I posited earlier, I don't think there was any way that a revived ECW brand under the banner of WWE could have ever really succeeded. But they sure didn't try that hard. <laughs> they... <laughs> <laughs> like it makes me appreciate that they at least try to make NXT look like they're on equal footing. Uh back at Survivor Series 20, what was it? 18? Was that was that the first time NXT appeared on uh no, it was 2019 no, cuz it was just last year, yeah. Yeah, it was 2019 cuz when AEW started. Yeah, so NXT like, won a lot. I appreciate that because again, it establishes the brand, but at the same time, what they've done since then is just LOL. And we also got the uh, the Keith Lee Roman Reigns showdown. Oh man! Where I was, I was actually screaming at my TV. When Absolutely incredible! Yeah. And now look what they're doing with Keith Lee on Raw. Keith Lee, in that match, hit the greatest power bomb in the history of professional wrestling. Bar none. Period. It was the single greatest power bomb of all time. And yeah, you know, now yeah. he's boring. Now he's boring, and no one cares. But that's the way it works. But yeah. They didn't. They didn't try too hard. It got pretty. It was pretty apparent early on that ECW was going to be like a distant third. It was apparent when they. I think it was like the second weekly ECW show in the Hammerstein Ballroom, which is like one of the iconic ECW venues, and was filled with a bunch of just like you know OG ECW mutant fans like hooting and hollering. The main event was Batista versus the Big Show. <laughs> How do you think that went over with those guys? I bet I'll you they booed the hell out of it. I'll give you two guesses how that went. They were completely understanding and understand that, that they have to market it, and this is a part of marketing. Yes, that was when the Fight Forever <laughs> chant began, actually. <laughs> Our main events, we have... A two-on-five handicap match between D-Generation X, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H, who had just reformed, and the Spirit Squad, the gaggle of evil male cheerleaders that, at this point in time, sort of served as Vince McMahon's goons. And it's really a pretty big uh, rib on Vince that the best goons that he can find are a group of evil male male cheerleaders. But they went down to OVW, they picked out five young Aryan lads, and they got them up there, and they're really exuberant and actually kind of fun to watch. I, I, I will give them credit. I do enjoy the Spirit Squad, unironically. I think they're fun. I, I think they're definitely funny. Yeah. I, I Their antics their antics are enjoyable to watch, in my opinion. Solid mid-card heels. So they but but they are main eventing a pay-per-view. The Spirit Squad main evented a pay-per-view and we can never forget that this happened. This actually happened in real life. So DX comes out, they do their shtick, 
They do, are you ready? Let's get ready to suck it. Oh, the fans love it. Somebody behind uh, Shawn Michaels in this part has a sign that says the Unix squad, but it actually misspells unit. But <laughs> I give them credit for actually knowing what that word means. Because sometimes wrestling fans, you know, they surprise you. He probably read that on like a message board. Probably. So the whole story of this match is that DX is just way better than the Spirit Squad at wrestling. And every time it's just Shawn Michaels and Triple H beating the hell out of them. But sometimes Spirit Squad, through use of pure human wave tactics, is able to occasionally get the upper hand on DX and do some stuff. So very early on, Johnny from the Spirit Squad, he gets busted open somehow. And he demands to get tagged in. And he's bleeding everywhere, all over his face. And he then ties like a karate headband around his just bloodied head and starts pretending to do karate stuff and doing a bunch of kicks in the air. Triple H comes in and just kills him immediately. Just massacres him. Um, whole first section of the match is just Triple H and Shawn Michaels having their way, beating everyone up. Shawn hits a flying elbow on Mikey. He tunes up the band for the sweet chin music, but the rest of the squad runs in. Johnny hits a flying spinning back kick, and he knocks Shawn Michaels out. And so they actually are able to get the advantage on Shawn Michaels and beat him up for a long time. At one point, Kenny, who was kind of the leader of the Spirit Squad, just brains him with a chair. Just pure, unprotected chair shot to the head. Loud sound on that one. And then, probably my favorite spot of the entire night, Mikey runs in and jumps off of the trampoline that they used to jump <laughs> into the ring. He actually uses the trampoline in the match, jumps over the top rope, comes down and hits a bulldog coming over the top rope on HBK, which I thought was awesome. They all beat on him for a long time, but he ends up coming back. He hits a double DDT, finally gets the tag to Triple H, who runs wild. He hands out a bunch of spine busters. Mikey tries to do a 450 cannonball off the trampoline onto Shawn Michaels on the outside, but Michaels dodges, and Mikey ends up flying in and just taking out all his teammates instead. So that leaves... DX facing down Kenny. Triple H hits a pedigree on Kenny right as HBK super kicks one of the other losers who tried to run into the ring and break things up. And they both get pins at the same time. 17 minutes, 45 seconds. And the grand finale, Triple H in the center of the ring, he pulls down his pants, exposes that Connecticut blue blood ass. And Shawn Michaels takes Mitch's face and just shoves it directly into his asshole. And he just like, just goes straight in, just goes straight into his ass. And he puts it there and he shrubs his face in triple H's ass. Hey, David, and that is the end of the show. David, real quick question for you. This is not, you've heard of the kiss my ass club. This is the eat my ass out club. <laughs> David, quick question for you. How old are Triple H and Shawn Michaels? 
They're in like they're like forty years old and they're doing this. Like, okay, I think the original because we this, just our last show we talked about the later DX reunion in like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. That one was more pathetic than this one, just because like the novelty of the DX reunion was in and of itself a thing. Like people did like DX and they thought it was cool to see DX. And I think that's fine. Like they did their shtick. We hadn't seen it in a while and that's cool. That's fun, whatever. But then you have them come back even later when they're even older and you've already done the nostalgia DX run. And that's actually really sad. This is dumb but, like, there's still some value in it because, like, the nostalgia is still kind of fresh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, overall, again, this just didn't, didn't need to be the main event. I understand why it's the main event. I get it. Vince, I get it. It still did not need to be a main event. Uh, I will say they did get creative with the trampoline. The two trampoline spots, the uh, from the outside over the top rope bulldog was really cool. I also thought the flipping centon into the jabronis was really cool. But it just, it didn't need to be the main event. And I think that's what I'll harp on. I, I think in in hindsight, it it, it might it shouldn't have been. But like at the time, it made sense because of the DX re- reunion, you know? And it's put, put butts in seats, I know. It's just, ugh. Now, here's here's the real question. And I texted you guys earlier today to be prepared to answer this. There is a right answer to this, all right? Give me your ranking of the Spirit Squad pa- by power level. Okay. Give me give me a lowest to highest. Okay. I'll I'll start off here. Okay. So my lowest is Johnny. Okay. Okay. So Johnny and I, I say this because Johnny almost in this match had a really badass moment. So he gets busted open real early in this match. And right afterwards, they, they huddle on the outside, they get back up, and Johnny demands to get tagged in. And he gets tagged in, and he jumps into the ring, and he's got blood pouring down his face, and he stares down Shawn Michaels, and he kind of spits the blood at Shawn Michaels a little bit. And I was like, oh, damn. Johnny's a badass right now. And then he immediately from there like goes to the karate, like, like uh, just comedy shit. And gets murdered. It's like, oh, like he was almost a badass for like five seconds, and again, he's just a just a jabroni loser. So Johnny at number five. I'm gonna go um Mikey at four. Okay. Because he's just sort of a guy, I don't know. Um my number three is Nikki. Obviously, he's becomes Dolph Ziggler, he has the you know, he, he's a little bit higher because he has the, the most successful career out of any of them after he's in the Spirit Squad. But he's just sort of a guy. He doesn't really stand out too much in the Spirit Squad, honestly. My number one, or my number two, is Kenny because he was the leader. He was always kind of presented as the leader. He was the guy who talked the most. He was the only one who was ever allowed to have, like, an accessory because he always wore a headband out to the ring. So that indicates higher status. And he was also, I believe, the first one of those guys to actually get to do any single stuff after the Spirit Squad broke up and was all shipped back in a crate to OVW. <laughs> he like actually stayed around and wrestled on SmackDown for a bit. So that kind of indicated where they, they what they thought of him. And number one is, of course, Mitch, because at the time he was dating Tori Wilson. 
You know now, what? Listen, I have a, I have right right and wrong answers, but I'll, I'll let Angelo go, and then I'll talk about now, it. How for, can you? Mitch was dating Tori Wilson. I, listen, we're gonna talk. We're so gonna talk. so Mitch was also the one that ended up with his head in Triple H's ass, right? Uh, no, I believe that was actually it was Mitch. Okay. So yeah, not only was he with Tori, but he also got to give a rim job to Triple H. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, for that reason alone, I mean, the the Tory Wilson thing, that is news to me. That, that was maybe factoring a little bit. But come on, you're the guy that's getting your face shoved into someone else's ass. You're at the bottom of the totem pole, Mitch. I'm sorry. No. Th- there's nothing listen, you can say that can save listen, you. Listen, it's, it's, like, it's like when you bring somebody in to be a jobber for a match. Like, it's, it's kind of a, it's not a glamorous position to be in because you're getting brought in to get your ass kicked. But at the same time, you have to have a lot of trust in that guy to be in that spot. And that shows a lot of trust in Mitch. They need to trust that he was really going to get his face in there. And he was really <laughs> going to dig down deep into Triple H's rectum. And that's exactly what he did. That shows a lot of trust in Mitch. Yeah, no, he's he's at the bottom of the totem pole, buddy. Uh, so Mitch is at the bottom. I think next you go Johnny for the same reason that David mentioned. He has a chance to look really, really cool. And then he gets just Shawn Michaels mocks him, tags in Triple H, and Triple H kicks the crap out of him. I think next up, I go with Nikki because, yeah, he's Dolph Ziggler. Yeah, he has the best career out of all five of these guys. But he is just kind of like a a do-nothing guy. He's just there. He sells like hell. And that's about it. I think next you go Mikey. And I go Mikey here because he has the two best spots in the match. He has the over-the-top rope bulldog, and he does the flipping senton into his crew of jabronis. And that leaves Kenny at the top, and Kenny is the leader. Um, and a guy that probably could have made it if they ever d- decided to spend any time developing him, but unfortunately they don't. So I go Kenny, Mikey, Nikki, Johnny, Mitch. Okay, so now for the objectively correct order. Um David, I understand why you put Mitch at number one, but Mitch is number five, dude. No, he had to come eat on. Triple H's ass, okay? Mitch is at the bottom. Johnny you, is You say he four. had to eat Triple H's ass? <laughs> I say he got to eat Triple H's ass. <laughs> That's where we disagree. Um, then I've got Johnny because Johnny also did nothing. I'm actually going with Mikey next because he turned into Mike Mundo after this, which like kind of, kind of a cursed character. Uh, then Nikki because it's Dolph Ziggler, and I had to put Kenny number one because Kenny's just like the most imposing. Like he was the leader. That is the objective, correct order, and you are both wrong. So I was only one. I was only two different than you technically. So <laughs> here's another fun Mitch fact for you. Not only was he dating Tori Wilson and dated Tori Wilson for several years while he was in WWE. Not only did he eat Triple H's ass, but after he was released from WWE, he retired from wrestling and decided to pursue a career in mixed martial arts. Oh, God. In April of 2010, he has his first... Uh, Jake, I think you might appreciate this. And anyone who watches MMA, who watches UFC, you know, who listens to this podcast will probably also appreciate this. April 2010, he has his professional MMA debut as a heavyweight against another guy making his... Uh, pro debut, a guy named Derek Lewis. Oh my God! Yeah. Did Derek uh, Lewis absolutely Derek brutalize Lewis him? Punches his head off. <laughs> <laughs> Derek 
Derek Lewis, who is now one of the top heavyweight contenders in the UFC. Like, like imagine being this guy, and it's like, okay, it's your first fight. You're, you're probably thinking you're going to do pretty good. And they're like, yeah, you know, you're fighting this other guy. He's uh, also, it's also his first fight, and he's some kind of fat guy. Like, you'll probably do pretty well. And then it turns out to be Derek Lewis, and he kills you immediately. <laughs> like, he punches your jaw into the 10th row. On the oh, my God, that's fight. great. Yeah. Yep, so that is uh, that is the story of Mitch, and he's my number one. But averaging out, okay, uh, you had him at five, you had him at five, I had him at one. So that's an average placement of like three and a half. I, I think it's like 3.67. That's 3. fine. 3.67, that's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly 3.67. This is now a Mitch from the Spirit Squad podcast. So now I hope everyone is really informed on Mitch and his life story. And I hope, Mitch, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. I hope you recovered from, from having to fight Derek Lewis. Technically, based uh, on averages, Johnny's the lowest. Oh, yeah, because Johnny's, Johnny's bottom tier to me. I just, I could not, I could not abide his performance today. Where he was on the cusp of doing something badass and then just, just went completely the other way. God awful. So that will bring us to our two and a half marks. Angelo, start us off. Sure thing. Uh, so two of them kind of go together, but uh, we'll start off with my half mark. My half mark is for underappreciated mid-carters. Johnny Nitro, Shelton Benjamin, Carlito, absolutely great mid-carters. I guess Umaga at this time is in the mid-card, but he's rapidly working his way up, so he's not so underappreciated. Uh, I guess Sabu and the whole ECW as a whole, solid mid-carters, underappreciated. So I'm just going to recognize them at the half mark. Um, the one mark is going to the premise of the ECW storyline, because again, I mentioned it throughout the uh, podcast. I enjoyed it. It made sense. Yeah. It kind of loses its luster because ECW being under the WWE flagship kind of defeats its purpose in itself. However, you could have gotten really creative with it. You could have had it, let it have its own unique identity. You could have let it have the guys go over the established stars already, but you didn't. There's good promise there. But you didn't. And that leads me to my negative two marks. My negative two marks are going to putting the over guy over. And we see that now too. But just feeding guys for the sake of feeding guys. Yeah, it builds up their star power. But again, like we've seen with WWE now, they lack total star power at the top because they don't develop stars. They don't allow anyone to else to get these iconic moments other than the guys that they've already established. You can make a case that Orton is still young in his career and, you know, getting a win early and uh, getting this win might help him a little bit. But no one's going to remember this random Vengeance 2006 opening match against Kurt Angle. You could have given Kurt Angle that win <laughs> to help legitimize ECW. Uh, Kane, uh, I mean, Cena and Sabu. Again, Sabu is one of the most recognizable guys in ECW. You have the whole ECW out there. You have Paul Heyman involved in this feud. And you feed Sabu to Cena, a guy who absolutely at this time did not need to be fed. And then you kind of get to like DX versus Spirit Squad. Yeah, the whole point of DX reuniting was to make the Spirit Squad look like jabronis. But when you are looking for guys to continue to push up the card, and yeah, maybe Dolph Ziggler worked out. You could have had other guys. I mean, I think you develop a storyline if you don't get have let them get ragdolled right off the bat. Maybe you get some more investment. Maybe you get a better matchup. And again, with DX, 
I had this note before and I didn't mention it, so I'll mention it now while I'm talking about it. Wouldn't DX have been so much better if it wasn't like just just Michaels and uh, Triple H if they had brought in other guys into the faction? Well, I mean, possibly, but at the same time, you then risk like a uh, a Paul Roma in the Four Horsemen scenario. <laughs> Oh God! I thought, okay. we thought we tried to forget about that. Because, <laughs> like, my thing, like, thinking about this so far, I'm just looking at like guys on the card. Like, what if you had like Nitro and Shelton Benjamin? I know, like, they were kind of like feuding for the IC title at this point. But if you had those two guys in DX, both those guys are awesome. And I think both those guys, their characters that they already had at this point, could work in DX in some capacity. This is genuinely the first time I ever heard anyone suggest put Shelton Benjamin in D Generation. <laughs> 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 but I mean, he's a guy that like has struggled for identity in WWE no, forever. I mean, I'm not like, you know, I think there is like, like merit in like taking a guy who is young and developing and like young and talented and like attaching him to something that is more established and over and trying to get him more notoriety that way. It's just the idea of like, Shelton Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> would it's just it's it's a very funny concept to me we talked about I'm like trying to shit on you and make you feel bad i just i, I know i can i know don't worry i could tell when you're trying to shit on me and when you're just like genuinely enjoying an idea yeah. and this is definitely the latter but i, I don't know it's just something i thought because you have a bunch of these over guys already why not use those over guys to help other guys get over no and i mean I, I i do think there's a lot to that I do think there is a lot to that. We talk a lot about uh, AEW and like why we think it's better, but like, like look at some of the guys that they've had in the main event. They just had the Butcher fight John Moxley in the main event like last year, and month. it was awesome. And it was great. Like, like could you imagine? Like that would have been like, I don't even know who that would be like. It would have been like Kenny fighting for the world heavyweight title on like a Raw. You it'd know what like, I mean? It would be like Carlito going against the Undertaker. Yeah, yeah, and like people buying it, but people were like, "Oh man, like the butcher, that'll be fun." You know what I mean? Yeah, and the butcher looked awesome. Like you can know a guy's not going to win a match, but the, based on the way you book it, it can make all the difference. Like Moxley has not like Moxley has had a lot of close matches with like you have Archer, you have Brody Lee, you have the butcher, like all these guys. Like, make a match of Moxley, but Moxley never looks worse off. He doesn't look like he's a shaky champion because he's having close matches with all these guys. He still looks like a badass because he's fighting all these comers left and right. Yeah. David and I have been saying that for a long time. Like, you can have a guy that you know is not going to win, but, like, if they fool you once, it's a good match. Yeah. I mean, that that is that is one of the, like, great hallmarks of a great match for me is if I know the result coming in. Like, I know that there's no way that this person's going to win. And you work me into thinking that the underdog is going to win the match, then I know that it was a great match. And how many, and going off that point, and I'll let you guys get to your two and a half marks. I know I kind of like just sidetracked the entire thing. Um, how many matches on that can we say about this with Vengeance 2006? Or an angle? The IC title match? No. No, I mean, even I mean, then, like, like, you, like, like, if you knew the storylines coming in, you kind of saw it coming. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's not I mean, that's just one of the like one of the ways that like distinguishes a great match. It's not the only way. I mean, like Randy versus Kurt is not necessarily like a match where, you know, who's going to win coming in. Right. Mm -hmm. Like probably I would I, I don't think that I think the only one of these that you would say 
probably is one that you know who's going to win coming in. I mean, Umaga Eugene was always going to be a squash. Probably... Flair Foley? No, I mean, no. I, I, I could see Mick winning that one. Probably the only ones that you know who's going to win. Like, you know that Cena realistically is going to beat Sabu, and you know that DX is going to beat Spirit Squad. Because the, the Spirit Squad is the Spirit Squad. They're not going to win a pay-per-view main event. So, yeah. Neither, I mean, like, the the DX Spirit Squad match did not succeed in making me feel in any way that the Spirit Squad was going to win. But I still enjoyed it for what it was. So. My turn. Yes, Jake, go for it. Alrighty, so I've got a negative half mark, and they're gonna go to slingshot spots because they're bad. You, David, do not tell me you like slingshot spots. Well, okay, define slingshot spot. To me. I, I that's what I call like whenever you've got the guy in the like swing hold, like on your knees, and you like fall backwards and like throw them at the turnbuckle. Okay, they suck. I mean, that's just a very specific. I mean, like. Okay, it's a move that people do. It's like a little transition. I hate them. I'm giving okay. them a negative half a mark because they happened in the... Uh, which match was it? Uh, the, the triple threat. I forget who did it, but like I saw it happen and I was like, God, that just it always looks so bad. And it's like the, the guy has to like throw themselves to make it even look halfway remarkable. Bad spot. Don't do it. Negative half a mark. I'm just telling you now, David. But I will give a one mark to exposed turnbuckle spots because I think that those are a great way to get kind of like an unbeatable guy to lose. Uh, and we saw it in the Kurt Angle Randy Orton match, but it made me think of do you guys remember when The Miz was Intercontinental Champion? He went off TV for a while, so for the baby, and Roman won it. This yes. would have been like two years ago. And Roman was the IC champ for like a couple months. But then they had to bring Miz back. And Miz won the title back off of him using a turnbuckle spot. And it just made a lot of sense because Roman was like unbeatable. So they had to find some way. So he ate like two uh, skull crushing finales and a turnbuckle spot. You also had Bailey um, last year beat Charlotte for the SmackDown title when, um, to start her heel run. Yeah, with, yeah. With exactly. the turnbuckle spot. And it always works. I, I just think that it always works and it's always effective. I'm giving a negative two. And before I, I I'm going to tell you what it is. And then I got a question for you. I'm giving negative two to imposter matches because they're bad. Once again, Angelo, can you name the three imposter matches in WCW and WWF slash E history? Hmm. I feel we like know one Kane. Kane I, versus I feel Kane. like Undertaker has to be another one. Yes, Undertaker yes. did fight fake Undertaker. The fake, the fake Undertaker in 94. Maybe? At SummerSlam 94, yeah. right? I want to say it's got the last one's got to be like Ultimate Warrior or Hulk. Different face paint guy. Sting? Yes. Sting That's right, the fighting, fake Stings. Sting was fighting yeah. fake Sting. Now, I don't know if they ever have a, had a one-on-one -on -one match, but they were tagging with people and definitely fought each other. I do yeah, remember they what had, They had the NWO Sting. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, like NWO Sting was so fucking over in Japan yeah. that like American Sting couldn't get over there. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing ever. I do remember like Sting taking off a Sting face mask to reveal that he is Sting being <laughs> one of the all time. To this day, to this day, I talk about that with David all the time because I just love when Sting takes the mask off 
and it's Sting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So negative two to imposter matches. They're not good. The angles suck. Just get them off of my team. I'm really proud of I knew all three. I, I, the face paint clue. Oh, I had to tell you a face paint guy. Yeah, I probably would, no Sting. Once Sting, he tells you, once no, he tells you it's a okay, face paint but, guy, that really that really narrows it well, down. No, because if it wasn't either a Hulk or uh, Warrior, I was gonna say Sting. You tell yourself Thank that, you. buddy. David, what do you got? Thank you for reminding me about how NWO Sting was just bizarrely, <laughs> insanely over in Japan, <laughs> and he was he like, was, te- yeah, he was like teaming with Chono, who was like yes. the top guy. Yeah, it was all aw- just so <laughs> fucking funny. <laughs> Makes no sense, but it's it's even funnier that they did an imposter Kane, a fake Kane, because of course one of Kane, the original Kane, Glenn Jacobs's first on-screen roles in WWE was as the fake, fake Undertaker. Oh, fake Diesel. As the fake Undertaker, Diesel. Fake Diesel. Yeah. So it just it comes full circle. So my two and a half marks, I'm gonna give a negative half to mid two thousands backstage segments. <laughs> now there are a couple ones that I really enjoy. Like Vince McMahon murdering a child in a wheelchair, for example. But by and large, it just reminds you how insanely lowbrow and trashy just the writing was in WWE at the time (laughs) and not really in a funny way, just kind of in an uncomfortable way. Like this does not age well at all. And I can't really imagine who found this funny back then type of way. Although Vince McMahon penis pump is a winning comedy combination. My one mark is using unorthodox props in wrestling and the thing that prompts me to say this is the trampoline in the Spirit oh Squad match. I just got such a big kick out of that because you've seen people use the trampoline before for their ring entrances. Sin Cara did it. Kalisto did it. They jump over the ropes and it looks really cool and we all love it. But then they take the trampoline and they always just put it away. The Spirit Squad said... What if we kept the trampoline out there and used it to do cool shit? And they did. And I just got a huge kick out of it. I loved it because you don't usually see people use the mini trampoline in a match. And they actually did some pretty neat stuff with it. I love that bulldog over the top rope. I just thought that was a great spot. And my two marks goes to... This ties in with my half mark. While I do hate the backstage segments in the mid-2000s, I do love Vince McMahon's acting. The man in another life, he could have been like the the angry yet befuddled Dean in Animal House. He could have been he could have been just a tremendous actor. His facial expressions are so great, just the way he delivers all these comedic lines. He's just so funny. He is just so funny. Like one of the like one of my favorite moments of the whole show was the whole thing with him and the kid in the wheelchair. And I was <laughs> laughing my ass off the whole time. And he just sold it so well. He 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 was great. Vince McMahon, just out of pure serendipity, the guy who was owning the company turned out to be one of its greatest performers. So and you wouldn't have guessed it if you ever listened to him do to play by play because he oh my was god god awful, but he found his he found his role and he was amazing. So that will finish up our coverage of WWE Vengeance 2006. So that will bring us to our last order of business. We're gonna hit 
the randomizer and find out what we're going to be watching next week as I pull this up. What are you boys hoping for? Hmm. I want another in your house. No. Uh, I want some NXT, I think. I want some NXT. Cleanse the palate a bit, huh? Yeah. We are not going to get either of that. Ah, damn. My friends, we are going to get a very special night in the history. Of oh, the no. Wrestling. Oh, Jesus Christ. WCW Starcade 1998. The Knights where Kevin Nash and Scott Hall shocked Goldberg with a taser. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> we get to talk about that. Yes. yes. The night where Goldberg lost his streak because he got tased by Scott Hall. <laughs> wow. This is a spicy episode. This is this is the first time that we have gotten into like this whole time period of WCW. For whatever reason, whenever we got in WCW, it has always been like the early 90s or like 1988. This is the first time that we get the good shit. <laughs> so next Wait, is week. This, is, is this part of the 83 weeks time period? This, I believe, was it after the 83 weeks? I don't know. I just want to know if I get to talk about Eric Bischoff or not. I am not sure. When did the, when did the streak end? I don't know. Are you looking it up? I am looking it up. Uh, talk about something while I'm looking this up so we don't have an awkward silence. Angela, do you have the card pulled up? I do have the card pulled up. It's a very what? weird card. What's the What's the first match? The, so the first match is Billy Kidman versus Rey Mysterio. And I'm going to butcher this name. I know David said it earlier. Juventud Guerrera. Juventud Guerrera. Juventud. Okay. Wow. Okay. What a By match. the way, but yeah, I'm sure that was an absolute. But wait, wait. Because the next match is Billy Kidman again facing Eddie Guerrero, also for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship match, uh, title. Oof. This was, by the way, after the end of the 83 okay. weeks. It stretched from June 96 to uh, April of 98. And this takes place in December of 98. Okay. But yeah, we got some stuff with Juventud. We got some stuff with Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio. We've this got is, a bunch of guys this on the This is card. bizarre. I'm looking. We got, we got Jericho. We got Flair, DDP. We've got a, we got a bunch of guys. Who, could, who could forget Norman Smiley? Norman Smiley, God. the big wiggle. Oh my Perry God. Saturn. Yeah, we Perry Saturn Perry was Saturn. awesome. Oh, Perry shoot. We got cool. Ernest the Cat Miller. Yes, oh, we got our man. first Ernest the Cat Miller appearance. I have been... I've been screaming for some Ernest the Cat Miller on this on this show. We got be good. Jericho um, Conan, right? Conan? Yes. Jericho Conan. 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 God, we've already Bischoff Bischoff Flair? What? Bischoff Flair. We have a Bischoff match? We got an Eric Bischoff match, boys. Oh, yes. Okay. Somebody get Vince Russo out here. And we've got DDP versus the Giants, later known as the Big Show. So, next week, man, I'm excited for this. This is going to be a so good sweet. One. WCW Starcade 1998, next week here on the Two and a Half Marks podcast. So, until next time, I'm David Statman. And for my friends, Angelo Anglisa and Jake Long, as always, thanks everybody for listening.